This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show, which we have plenty of tonight. Hence, my involvement is cut to a minimum. So, let's get right to it. The first show is Suspense, and it's entitled, My Own Murderer. Suspense. Tonight, Roma Wines bring you the suspenseful play called, My Own Murderer. Starring Mr. Herbert Marshall. Suspense is presented for your enjoyment by Roma Wine. As Roma Wines bring you a remarkable tale of suspense. And with the drama called My Own Murderer. And with the performance of Mr. Herbert Marshall, Roma Wines hope indeed to keep you in suspense. I was never really much attracted by Alan Rennick, even before he murdered Baines. It had been a raw March day, and I returned home at about half past eleven in the evening to find Alan Rennick waiting on my doorstep. Hello, Dick. Alan, what on earth are you doing here? It's a long story, old boy. Aren't you going to ask me, and or is it your habit to keep people waiting on your threshold? Well, give me a chance. After you. I say, this is cozy. Just about right for a bachelor who never entertained. I dare say it wouldn't do for you at all. I wouldn't be too sure of that. Just one bedroom? There's a spare, but I've never used it. But very hospitable, are you all trapped? I never had any occasion to be. Well, you have now. What's in your mind, Alan? I'm coming to that. You remember Baines, my butler and valet? Mm, vaguely. Well, Baines turned out a bad penny. About to blackmail me, as a matter of fact. Blackmail? Yes, he got hold of some letters written to me by a lady. A married lady? You guessed it. Since you're my legal advisor, you may as well know the whole story. They were from Anita Kilner. Uh, so you bolted, warned her, and put the police on him? The police? <laughs> no, I couldn't afford to do that. Wouldn't, couldn't very well produce Anita's letters. Then you paid Baines the blackmail he wanted, huh? Certainly not. Then what? I'm afraid I lost my temper. Good Lord, you don't mean to say there was violence. Of course there was. You don't think I could let a reptile like that go on living? Let me get this straight. Are you trying to tell me that you... I beat his brains out. The poker. You... You murdered him? Well, I suppose that's what the police would call it. Happened this afternoon. Uh, well, three o'clock, I think. Oh, I don't know sooner. It'll be too late now to fix up an alibi for you. You'll think up something, won't you, Dick? You always do when I'm in a jam. And in the meantime, I can hide out here, can't I? What possible good will that do? They'll track you down here sooner or later, and then we'll both be in the soup. No, Alan, no, you better give yourself up. 
Then I'll see what can be done about getting you off. Perhaps we could muster you up a bit and plead self-defense. Well, is that the best your devious legal mind can dream up? At the moment, yes. I'm a little tired. Well, I'm not going to cooperate. I'm going to stay right here till you figure out a way to get me clear of this. Alan, be reasonable for your own good. Give yourself up. Is it my own good you're thinking of? Or is it because you're afraid you'll be caught harboring a criminal and lose your filthy law practice? That settles it. What are you doing? Telephoning the police. Put that phone down. It's best this way, believe me, Alan. I've already committed one murder this evening. I've nothing to lose by committing another. I, uh, uh, sorry, wrong number. <laughs> You're really afraid of me, aren't you? Now, perhaps. Tomorrow I could turn you in with no risk whatsoever. But I don't think I will. There's a good fellow. I'll let you stay here, Alan. I'll save your neck for you, too. Why this sudden change of heart? You've always thought me rather a worm, haven't you, Alan? Oh, I say dick, old boy. You were the dashing man about town with your escapades and your lordly extravagances and your women running after you. I was just a dull fellow trapped in a musty law office. Now your very life depends on me. I suppose that's why the situation appeals to me. It's an adventure, if you like. Well, I don't. I just say not. It won't be pleasant for you cooped up in this little flat with no one but me to talk to. Well, after all, it's only temporary. You may not like some aspects of it, even for a little while. You'll have to do your own laundry, of course. I say. Checking laundry is a favorite police trick. And no lights must be turned on in the flat when I'm not at home. You mean I've got to sit here in the dark? You can go into the kitchen or the bathroom. There are no outside windows in those rooms. Oh, and talking of the kitchen, I think you ought to have your meals there. Even when I'm in. You'll serve me in the dining room. Look here, do you think I'm your servant or what? As a matter of fact, it's only fair you should be. Since I can't hire any help so long as you're here. Well, wouldn't it be simpler and more meaty if we both dined in the kitchen? I'm not used to dining in the kitchen. Neither am I. Then the sooner you practice, the better. The future's not going to be so simple for you as the past has been, Alan. But after all, you're very lucky to have a future at all. Eh? <laughs> Well, Dick, whatever it is, one thing is certain. I'll have you to thank for it. But I warn you, Dick. If I do hang, it won't be only for Bane's murder. But for yours as well. For suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you as star Mr. Herbert Marshall as Richard Sampson with Norman Lloyd as Alan Rainick in My Own Murderer by Richard Hull, which is Roma Wine's presentation tonight of Suspense. Now it is with pleasure that we welcome back to our Hollywood soundstage Mr. Herbert Marshall, who, as Richard Sampson in My Own Murderer, Continues a narrative well calculated to keep you in suspense. Should Alan Rennick prove to be my own murderer, as well as Baines's, this document will serve as his death warrant. If not, well, I should make good use of it anyhow. This, then, is what I decided to do. 
I was to keep Alan Rennick and hide him where he was, in my flat. I had a plan for effecting his escape. But it was more than a month before I had an opportunity to start it in motion. It came quite unexpectedly in the course of my almost daily visits to the old Bailey. An insurance case preceded mine on the court docket. And I was forced to wait while a revolting red-headed doctor rambled on with his testimony. That red hair of his really fascinated me. But not as much as his medical bag, which lay on the bench before me. Uh-huh. Well, thank you very much, Doctor. But when he stepped down from the box, I was already on my way out of the courtroom. Hey, hey, stop that man. He stole my bag. What's this? What's the trouble, Doctor? Well, that man, the one with the tortoiseshell glasses, he's made off with my kit. What did you say he took? A black leather bag, you know the type, with my name on it. Well, I'm afraid he's lost in the crowd by this time, sir. But if your name's on it, could you identify him if you saw him again? Well, of course I could. He had on tortoiseshell glasses and he had a bad mastoid skull right under his right ear. All the time he was talking to the policeman, I was standing not more than five paces away, lost among the curious crowd that had collected about them. I left the room with the crowd and hailed a cab. When I'd taken what I needed from his bag, I threw it with its remaining contents into the ever-useful Regent's Canal. Its owner's name, stamped on the outer side of it, was as revolting as his red hair. Jeremiah Bloggins. Jeremiah Bloggins. Now my plan for Alan's escape swung into motion. Our chief accomplice was a woman friend of Alan's named Margaret Farley, whom I knew to be one of the most intelligent of his acquaintances. Hello, Dick. Where's Alan? It's all right, Alan. You... Come out now. Well, it's high time. Hello, Margaret. Alan. Oh, Alan, my poor, poor darling. Long time, no see. But you're still the prettiest girl in London. Look, I'm sorry to interrupt this touching little scene, but there's not too much time. Shall we discuss our plan? Yes, of course. Well, in essence, this is it. Alan's going to die. What do you mean by that? I say, isn't that rather extreme? Not literally, of course. The point is to arrange a bogus death of some sort. To get you declared legally dead, and then you'll assume another identity. Well, that has possibilities, but what about the body? Well, I'm afraid I'm forced back on the old expedient of the suicide note. The clothes left on the riverbank, and the body that's never recovered. Later on, you're declared legally dead. It's a very old plan. And rather unlikely to deceive the police for that reason. Don't you think, old boy? Oh, we'll admit later on, if necessary, that it was a put-up job. What's the good of that? Don't you see? The police ask too many questions. Miss Farley here will admit being a party to a bogus suicide. But stick to her story that you really drowned that misadventure while trying to carry out your plan. I think it has possibilities, Alan. Where is this Hellespont that I'm supposed to swim? Well, I've been studying maps of the English coastline. We should choose the mouth of a river where the tidal currents are strong enough to, to sweep a body out to sea. Not too broad a channel. So it can be easily swum when the tide's at low ebb. And not too near a town or village. So there'll be no unwanted witnesses. So I grow a beard, swim the river, put on a different clothes, and become, uh, uh, Jeremiah Bloggins or somebody for the rest of my life. What? How did you happen to mention that name? Jeremiah Bloggins? Huh? Why not? <laughs> Good a name as any. Don't you think so, Margaret? I don't think this is quite the time for facetiousness, Alan. Well, all right. So I become Jeremiah Bloggin. That's better than hanging. 
But what will Jeremiah Bloggins do for money? Well, you could make out a will in favor of Margaret here. Oh, I I suppose I can depend on you to make things stick legally. Well, I'm putting myself in a position where you could easily blackmail me if I didn't. He has a point there, Alan. Now, we'll need another confederate. Somebody to look after when you get to the other shore. We could leave a car there, of course, but the effect of the cold water... Well, I think it's safer to have somebody waiting for you. On the other side. Who will it be? That, uh... That actress friend of Alan, Anita Kilner. That woman? Oh, how can you suggest such a thing? Oh, come now, Margaret. It's true that Anita's a fool and rather a tiresome one. I, I don't know whether Dick told you, but her letters got me into this mess. Baines was trying to blackmail me for them, and that's why I killed him. Dick's right. I need someone, and I can trust Anita. Because of those letters, if for no other reason. Heavens, what a scheme. Everybody's in a position to blackmail everybody else. Yes, that had already occurred to me. That's exactly why this... Plan can't possibly fail. The river mouth we finally hit upon was near Mutford. It was Margaret Farley's choice, and it was a good one. Still, I was afraid to trust everything to her. So I decided to drive Alan down there and leave as soon as I saw him safely in the water. Margaret Farley was to meet us there. Anita would be waiting on the other bank. It was at times a revolting journey down to Mutford that night. The trouble with you, Dick, is that you like managing people. Mark my words, one day I shall be a free man again. And then I shall try and repay you for some of the things you've made me put up with. Cleaning up after you, making me say, yes, Dick, certainly, Dick. Of course, Dick. I suppose it's quite useless to point out to you that what I did was not only for your own good, but absolutely necessary... Incidentally, I shouldn't be smoking quite so much if I were you. You've got to do some swimming tonight, remember, and you're hopelessly out of condition. How I should like to give you just one on the jaw. Just one? Seven is your usual number, isn't it? Isn't that what it took to kill Bane? You are not terrible swine. If, if you weren't driving the car, I'd give you something to remember me by. I shan't forget you easily as it is. Oh, well, forget what I say. Come on, agents. The devil of a cold night, too. Did you bring that black coffee as I asked you to? Where's the thermos? There on the back seat. Help yourself. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Filthy coffee. I should have made it myself. Better save a little for just before you go into the water. Margaret's bound to have brought some, too. I'll just finish it off. You know... Bad as it tastes, it's making me feel a lot better. I thought you'd never come. Oh, Alan, you poor boy, we would pick the coldest night in the year. Oh, nonsense. I feel marvelous, marvelous. Well, I brought you some hot coffee. It's here in this thermos. Better save it for just before I dive in. Well, come along. Let's get going. Oh, I wish he wouldn't rush things, so. He'll wear himself out before he gets in the water. If I know Alan, he's whistling past the cemetery. If he doesn't lose his nerve at the last moment, if he does... You mustn't imply things like that about Alan. Besides, I don't know that I could bring myself actually to push it. You must. You know what he is, and tonight he's especially difficult. All right. I'll do whatever seems necessary. I don't know what's come over me. I feel positively numb. Really, it's... It's much too cold. 
And we better try it another night. Now, Alan. I, I, I can't, Margaret. I'm afraid it's, it's too cold. Here, here's the thermos. Here, drink this, darling. It'll warm you up. Yeah. Oh, Go on, drink it up. There. Well, I, I, I feel terrible. I, I've never been so cold in my life. Now, go on, Alan. Be brave. You were always that. Now, look, darling. Really. No. No, don't. I... No, please. No, please. from it myself. Now, look. You better go on home and act as if you hadn't been away and don't telephone me again. I'll let you know the moment I hear from him. Day followed day with no word from Alan. I had no alternative but to assume that he had drowned there in the estuary that night. The body had not been found. But then we had deliberately chosen a place where the tide could be alleged to have carried it out to sea. The uncertainty was a little distressing. I had not forgotten his threat to come back and even scores with me once he got free. And tonight came an unpleasant little scene to not help my frame of mind. It began with Anita. I know you're angry at me for coming in, Mr. Samson. But I've simply got to talk to someone. Well, you ought not to come here. It isn't safe. Safe? <laughs> You're a nice one to talk about safety. Do you think Alan's safe now? I don't know. And I don't believe you care. Trusted you, you've let him down. Oh, why did he ever trust himself to a brute like you? You and your plans and your cleverness. Where are they all now? And you sit back contented with what you've done. If I may interrupt your panegyric for a moment, Anita, I'd better answer that. You listen to me first. Oh, well, I shall see about that. Well, it seems to be a gathering of the clan. Oh, it's you, Mrs. Farley. I want to talk to you, too. So you missed him. He didn't come. I did my part. Did you do yours? I did my best. But I don't know. I, I ought never to have let him go, considering how cold and miserable he was. I ought to have stopped him. And why didn't you? Because you had a preconceived idea put into your head by this conniving brute of an attorney. He planned it all. And now he isn't going to turn a hand to find Alan and help him if he needs it. Because it might jeopardize his filthy little law practice. Well, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to the police and tell them the whole story. Has it occurred to you that the police cannot possibly help anyone in this case and may possibly harm all three of us? And if Alan is alive, you inevitably do him harm. Yes. He's right. I pushed him in. I... I pushed him in. Don't be morbid. <laughs> You did what you could with excellent intentions. Are you going to clear your conscience by getting two other people into trouble? Are you, Anita? Why? I confess I'm not too keen on helping Margaret to be a martyr for Alan. How dare you? It was you and your hysterical letters that got Alan into this mess. And wouldn't it be ironic if they ended up by being published anyway? That would be a fine tribute to Alan's sacrifice. Especially if he's dead and gone. What are you driving at? I have those letters. I'm not going to demand a price for them like Baines, 
But at the same time... You dirty blackmailer. I'm merely forcing you to do something for your own good. Just like giving a patient morphia to prevent him from doing an injury to himself. Morphia? A figure of speech, but I think you understand what I mean. Morphia. After the women had gone, I thought over the conversation. Particularly that part of it in which Margaret Farley repeated the word morphia. I think she knows. But even if Alan's body is recovered and they find what he really died of, they can never make an accusation. They have to prove possession of the morphia. And no one in the world can do that. I meant to call Anita Kiln and found her out. I find that I don't even know her married name. Not that it matters, considering what went on with Alan behind her husband's back. In any case, I can depend on her letters to keep her mouth shut. On reading this over, I find that in my marshalling of the facts in this case, I have omitted one possibility. Far-fetched, it's true. But there is one person whom I should set about finding if I were acting for the Crown in this case. I refer to that abominable, truculent, red-headed doctor with a ridiculous name. Yes, Mr. Chapsworth. I'm leaving the office for the day, Chapsworth. Will you uh, put these files in my briefcase? Yes, sir. And will you get out Rennick's file? The world goes into probate tomorrow, and I want to study it at home tonight. Yes, sir. Oh, by the way, that gentleman is still waiting in the outer office. What gentleman? Oh, I must have forgotten to tell you. He came in with a lady just a moment ago. Dr. Bloggins. Bloggins? Jeremiah Bloggins. <laughs> Peculiar name, isn't it? Uh, I beg pardon, he's a friend of yours, sir. No. No, not especially. You say I was in? Yes, I'm afraid I did. Yeah. Chatworth. If you ever become a solicitor, be sure your office has two entrances. Shall I send him away, sir? Jeremiah Bloggins. Hmm. I dare say he'd be unpleasantly persistent. Better let him come in. Yes, sir. Will you be needing me, Mr. Sampson? Yes. You better sit down. I want you to take down a statement. Yes. Will you come in, please? Thank you. Hello, Mr. Sampson. I want you to meet... Dr. Bloggins. Yes, we met before. Oh, oh, oh. Strange you should have been the one to bring this about, Anita. I always thought Margaret Farley the cleverer one. Or should I speak so frankly? Dr. Bloggins knows everything, Mr. Sampson. Yes, I know. But just for the record, are you ready to take down that statement, Chapman? Yes, Mr. Sampson. Very well. I murdered Alan Rennick. Uh, just a moment, uh, Mr. Please Sampson. don't interrupt. Yes, I murdered him. Why not? He was a killer. He forced himself on me and turned himself into my private property. He might indeed be called my own murderer. My motive? Well, perhaps one day the world will learn that the the strongest compulsion to murder is hatred. I hated Alan Rennick. I planned his murder brilliantly. I had counted on the sea holding... Rennick long enough for the traces of morphia to have gone. I really cannot be responsible for the treachery of the elements. 
Only one man had the evidence to convict me, and the odds against his being found and brought face to face with me were so slight that I would risk it again. I'm not sorry that I killed him. Even now I'm able to say that it's been a great adventure, requiring courage and daring beyond Rennick's wildest imagination. I have proved which of us was the better man. Do you have all that, Chatsworth? Yes, sir. Oh, uh, add this note at the bottom. In view of the customary bumbling and obtuseness of the Crown Prosecutor, it will be probably necessary to state that this case will be greatly facilitated by calling as his first witness, Dr. Jeremiah Bloggins. Uh, uh, look here, pa. perhaps I'm obtuse, but why on earth are you trying to involve me in your beastly murder? Huh? <laughs> do, do you... Do you mean to say you don't recognize me? Why, no, well, why should I? Anita, why did you bring this man here? I thought you knew. He's my husband. After Alan's body was found, I decided to tell him everything. He simply came here to get the letters. And you don't even remember me? When, when your bag was stolen while you were testifying at the old Bailey? Well, so, so you're the blighter who did that. Good heavens. That's where you got the mafia. Out of my bag. Yes, I suppose I could. Get you held as accessory after the fact. But that would only confuse the Crown Prosecutor. Oh, well, on the whole, I'm rather glad it worked out this way. After all, as Nanky Pooh says in the Mercado, there's much to be said for the advantage of having it done by the public executioner. <laughs> And so closes My Own Murderer, in which Roma Wines have brought you a star, Herbert Marshall, with Norman Lloyd, in tonight's study in Suspense. Suspense is produced, edited, and directed by William Spear. This is Herbert Marshall. It's been a great pleasure, as always, to make an appearance on Suspense, a show which is but a very great favorite with all of us. Mr. Spear has just been telling me about next Thursday's broadcast, and it sounds like one of the very finest of the year. It's a really wonderful story by W.F. Harvey, August Heat. And in it, as your star, will be Ronald Coleman. Now, if you'll permit a most important word. War news from the Pacific is encouraging. We're on our way to Tokyo. But until Japan is beaten to our knees, the war goes on. It takes dollars to buy the equipment our men need. Your dollars. And by investing those dollars in war bonds now during the seventh war loan drive, you help your country and help yourself to greater post-war purchasing power. Get extra bonds. Big ones. During the mighty seventh. Next Thursday, same time, Mr. Ronald Coleman will be your star of... Suspense. Presented by Roma Wines, R-O-M-A. Made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
Stay tuned for Martin and Lewis up next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis and their special guest, Lucille Ball. It's the new, the great, the different, the Martin and Lewis show. The National Broadcasting Company brings you the new Martin and Lewis show. Our guest tonight, Lucille Ball, and featuring Eileen Woods, Flo McMichael, Dick Stabile and his orchestra, and starring Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. As you know, ladies and gentlemen, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis are two young men who, overnight, have become the nation's comedy hit. But let's get on with the show. We take you now to the apartment of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, where we find the boys getting ready, somewhat nervously, to go to the NBC studios for their first radio show. There's a tree in the meadow with a stream drifting by. Answer the phone, Jerry, I'm tying my tie. Okay, Dean, there's a tree in the meadow with a stream drifting by. I could never be a big singer like Crosby. Well, why not? I sound too much like Dean. (laughs) Oh, it must be NBC again. What cowards we are. Why are we afraid to do our own radio show? After all, how big an egg can we lay? How big? Well, if we took a large hen and got it to hold back for two years... All right, Jerry, all right. (laughs) We've been acting like two frightened mice all day. We've got an ironclad contract to do the show. We've got to talk to NBC sometime. You're right. I'm not a frightened mouse. Answer the phone. (laughs) Oh, come on, Jerry, you answer it. Martin, I will tell you why I will not answer the phone. Indubitably, that is a call from NBC. And it is indubitably they want to know where the H-E-C-K we are because they are spending thousands and thousands of dollars and money (laughs) to build a sensational comedy and musical extravaganza around us. And if they think we are that important, why don't they call us? Jerry, they are calling us. Who else could it be besides NBC? Well... It could be a wrong number, a quiz show. Hey, a quiz show. They give you money just for answering a few questions. Give me that phone. Hello, 1492 Marie Antoinette and sulfuric acid. Ship the money. (laughs) Now, come on, Jerry. We got to get down to NBC right away. Let's go. Bing. Yeah? I'm scared. Look, we've done all right so far. We shouldn't be afraid. We did all right in nightclubs, didn't we? Yeah, but those people pay $10 cover charge, so they had to like us. But at a radio show, the audience gets in free, and at those prices, they can afford to hate us. (laughs) Because there's nothing cheaper than something that doesn't cost very much. I always say. Indubitably, but uh, come on, Jerry, get dressed. Okay, I shall wear my new sport coat, which the man said was good for town or country and just perfect for the beach. What is it, Gabardine? No, wet sand. (laughs) 
Jerry, you're just Stalin. That's impossible. Stalin's a big man in Russia. And Russia's a big country full of places like Veldastavostok. And... <laughs> they laughed. And Dnieper. And he's a big, important man. And if he thinks I'm impersonating him, he'll get mad and come and get me and send me to Siberia. And it's full of ice and snow and sleet. And Dean... Yeah? I'm cold. <laughs> Jerry, you and I are going to NBC and do that program. What are you scared of? When we played the Copacabana in New York, they laughed at us. When we played the Chaperie in Chicago, they laughed at us. And when we came out here and asked for a radio job... They laughed at us. <laughs> they didn't laugh at us. They signed us up. They want us. Jerry, we got to do this radio show. Who knows? This could make us famous. Yeah, famous. We could even become important actors. Yeah, important actors. Our names in lights, celebrities, stars in pictures. Yeah, names and lights, celebrities, stars and pictures. I can see it all. Big hits in nightclubs. We're famous. Everybody wants us. Hal Wallace signs us for a Paramount picture. NBC signs us for a radio show. We flop. <laughs> Nobody wants us. Hal Wallace won't speak to us. Paramount hates us. We spend our savings. We can't get work. We're tramping the streets, starving. We stop and press our noses against the bakery window. Dean. Why? I'm hungry. <laughs> Tell me, Jerry, did uh, Whitaker Chambers ever hide any papers in your head? <laughs> well, it ain't my fault. I don't have my head with me all the time, you know. Ah, <laughs> oh, let's answer it. Hello? Hello. Who is this speaking, please? Jerry. Jerry, you have to take the phone off of the hook. Yeah, when did they do that? <laughs> okay. Hello? Why aren't you guys down here at NBC? They're going nuts down here. Oh, it's our agent. Well, it's not your maiden aunt in Minneapolis. <laughs> Everyone's waiting to do the program. You guys are messing up the whole thing. Now, listen, I can explain everything. Good. Start with you. <laughs> now listen, boys, don't ruin everything This radio show means a lot to us Your careers, my commission You think I don't care about the show? I do After all, I gotta live too I can think of a loophole in that argument <laughs> Ooh, how you aggravate me Okay, Abby, we'll be right down there We can't leave yet, Jerry I gotta rehearse my number It's a romantic number I wish I had a girl to sing it to You know, to get me in the mood I'll be a girl if you'll promise to respect me. <laughs> Sing to me. I'm a great movie star and a princess of far-off India. Really? What princess of India are you? Rita Hayworth. You're... You're Rita Hayworth? But you're not even on the road to being a princess of India. Maybe I'm not on the road, but I'm sure following the right alley. <laughs> See, the idea of this gag, see, the idea of this gag is that, well, alley is an alley in the street, see, A-L-L-E-Y, but when you say alley, A-L-I, that's like the prince that is going to marry Rita Hayworth. It's all combined into one joke, and it's so funny, this kind of, look how they're staring at me. <laughs> see, Dean, everybody hates me. Ah, uh, Jerry, relax. Have faith in me. We'll do all right on the radio show. That's all right for you to say, but I haven't thought up any jokes to tell the people. Oh, you'll think of something. What about me? I haven't even rehearsed my song. I don't even know if I'm in good voice. Well, go ahead, sing. Give yourself a clue. 
satisfied till you break my heart. You're never satisfied till a tear drops dark. I've tried to shower you with love and kisses, but all I ever get from you is nagging and bragging, the poor heart is sagging the way you toss my heart around. A crying shame. Well, I'll bet you wouldn't like it if I did the same. You're only happy tearing all my dreams apart. You won't be satisfied till you break my heart. Oh, you won't be satisfied till you break my heart. You're never satisfied till the tear drops dark. I've tried to shower you with love and kisses. Ah, oh, but all I ever get from you is nagging and bragging. My poor heart is sagging the way you toss my heart around. It's a crying shame. Well, I'll bet you wouldn't like it if I did the same. You're only happy tearing all my dreams apart. You won't be satisfied until you break my heart. want my opinion of your rendition, and I cannot tell a lie. It was magnificent. <laughs> oh, well. Come on, let's go. Oh, not so fast. Let me take a look at you first. Stand up. Wash your hands? Yes, partner. Wash your face? Yes, sir. Behind your ears? Look, I'm just going to a broadcast. I'm not going to get married. <laughs> anyway, what about you? Did you bathe? Well, of course. I take a bath every day. <laughs> you take a bath every day? <laughs> well, of course. Oh, Dean, I'm so unworthy of you. Now, you, you talk like that. What'll people think? When was the last time you took a bath? In a tub? Yes. With soap? Yes. With water? Yes. Oh, Dean, I'm so unworthy of you. Oh, let's get out of this apartment and go to NBC. Who is it? It's the maid. I have to come in and clean the apartment. Well, okay, come on in. We're just leaving anyway. Gee, look at the load of equipment she's carrying. I never saw such a stack of stuff in my life. Here, let me help you before you drop it, miss. I can put it down myself, thank you. Oh, my goodness. Just look at the condition of this room. Huh? What's the matter with it? It's clean. Well, well, that's a break for you, then. You have no work to do. 
I don't have any work to do. That's fine. I'm the maid, and I'm supposed to clean the apartments every day. And if your apartment isn't dirty, then I don't have to clean it. And if I don't have to clean your apartment, I won't have anything to do for a half hour. So I'll go out in the hall, and I'll light a cigarette, and the manager will smell the smoke, and he'll come up to me, and he'll say, What are you doing smoking a cigarette in the hall? And I'll say, I haven't anything to do right now. And he'll say, Why aren't you cleaning the apartments? And I'll say, I didn't have to clean the apartments. And he'll say, Oh, you don't have to clean the apartments, huh? And he'll get mad and fire me, and all because your apartment is clean. <laughs> it's people like you that cause unemployment. <laughs> Miss, there's one thing I don't understand. What's that? Are you for real? (laughs) (laughs) Miss, we're not trying to get you fired. Do the best you can. We have to leave. Come on, Jerry, let's go. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Now what? There's a discrepancy in the bathroom. A what? (laughs) (laughs) One of you has to get married. The towels say his and hers, and you're a his and his. Okay, okay, look, just put in two hises. That'll fix it. Oh, it's not as simple as that. If I give you another his, then I'll have an extra hers. And at the end of the week, I'll have 148 hises and 149 herses. And the manager won't know why there's more herses than hises because he doesn't know how many hises and cheeses there are in the building anyway. <laughs> Okay, take all the towels out, all of them. From now on, we'll dry on newspapers. (laughs) Well, the next thing on my list is dusting. I'll start with a dresser. Don't touch that bottom drawer. Why not? Because that's where I keep my kittens. Hey, not the top drawer either. What's in the top drawer? Catnip. (laughs) Well, what's to prevent the cats in the bottom drawer from going up to the top drawer and eating the catnip? In the middle drawer, bulldogs. <laughs> My, you're odd people. <laughs> we ain't odd, we're entertainers. We're Martin and Lewis, and we got a radio show to do in a few minutes. Oh, you're on the radio. What do you do? Well, one of us is a singer. And the other guy's the funniest comedian you ever heard. He tells big jokes, kills the people, gets big laughs. Which is which? Well, come on, Jerry. Let's go to NBC. inside the studio in a few moments. Come on, Miranda, stand in line over here. Well, all right, but I don't understand, Henrietta. Who are Martin and Lewis? Well, my goodness, where have you been, Miranda? Well, they're famous. Oh? My husband was the conductor on the train they came out here on, and he heard that the greatest entertainers New York ever saw were Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Who told your husband that, Henrietta? Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. <laughs> Pardon me, ladies. Can you tell me how to get into the Martin and Lewis show? Oh, stand behind us, young man, and we'll get the best seats. You know, we always come to see these new comedians the very first week because usually they don't last for a second week. <laughs> <laughs> they don't, huh? Well, you don't know Martin and Lewis. They're the best comedians in the world, and I say that for two reasons. Red and butter. <laughs> 
You know, I'm anxious to see that handsome Dean Martin. <laughs> you know, Miranda, that, that Dean Martin's just the whole show as far as I'm concerned. He really has talent. Now, wait a minute, lady. It takes two to make a team, you know. Takes two to make a team, Martin and Lewis. That's the team. They got to stick together. That's the way it is with any team. Without Fibber, where would Molly be? Without Kaiser, where would Fraser be? And without Earl Warren, where would... Uh, what was that guy's name again? <laughs> okay, Jerry, I parked the car. Hey, what are you doing in this line? Oh, I'm with Dean Martin. Uh, hello, ladies. Oh, isn't he handsome? <laughs> what are you going to sing tonight, Mr. Martin? I'd like to get you on a slow boat to China. It's a deal. Get the tickets and I'll meet you at the door. Come on, Jerry. Let's go into the studio here. Let's go into the studio here, Jerry. all the people in here, Dean. I'm scared. Here's Dean Martin. I'm your producer, Mr. Martin. I'm your director, Mr. Martin. I'm your manager, Mr. Martin. I'm your singer, Mr. Martin. I'm your producer, Mr. Martin. I'm your director, Mr. Martin. I'm your leader, Mr. Martin. I'm your singer, Mr. Martin. What am I, the Larry Parks of this outfit? Ah, <laughs> oh, be quiet, Jerry. I gotta rehearse. Oh, now I gotta be quiet. You're a big star. A big man. You're too import- important for me. My tongue got in the way of my eye tooth I couldn't see what I was saying <laughs> you're, you're, you're just too important for me Well, I don't need a house to fall on me Goodbye, pal <laughs> I won't be a drag on you uh-huh. I'm sorry it had to end like this We had a lot of good times together Even if I always did have to take the ugly ones Ah, Jerry Jerry, your feelings are just hurt, that's all Oh, my feelings ain't hurt I'm happy I can laugh (laughs) I'll never forget you, Dean You go on without me And good luck, old pal I won't ever be jealous of your success When you're a big star and run over me in your big imported car I'll still be happy I'll just lay there and think Gee Vogue tires. <laughs> well, I'll go now. You people don't want me here. I'll be seeing you. Oh, poor Jerry. Why do you let him go away like that? Oh, Jerry will be all right. Let's rehearse. <clears throat> and now I would like to present one of Hollywood's most glamorous stars, currently gracing your neighborhood screens in Sorrowful Jones, a charming actress who gracefully combines the talents of a leading lady and comedian... Now, listen here, Dean Martin. Don't you say anything nice about me, you big bully, you you monster. I'll have you know that I... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Why, you are Lucille Ball. (laughs) But, But what's the matter, Lucille? Don't act like you don't know. You've got some nerve, Dean Martin, asking me to come down here and be a guest on your radio program after the way you beat up that sweet, adorable little Jerry Lewis. Why, uh, if I weren't a perfect lady, I'd slug you. The idea, beating up that darling, cute, lammy pie. Me? Yes, you, Dean Martin. (laughs) Well, Jerry, hey, hey, where'd he go? He's behind me, where he'll be safe. 
He's not going to stay out here where you can knock him down again. Knock him down? Yes, and kicking him and throwing dirt in his face and trying to drive your car over him. I did that? See, Lucille, he admits it. Oh, I get it. Jerry told you that story. Yes, he did. I never met anyone so contemptible as you in my whole life. How could you treat Jerry that way? He's so darling and so cute. You forgot Lammy Pie. <laughs> Just exactly what did Jerry tell you I did to him? He told me the whole story. It's incredible to me that you could pick on a little fella like that when you have such a grand physique. Uh, I mean, when, when you're so much bigger than he is, with all those great, big, powerful muscles. <laughs> you, you, big... Yes? <laughs> and, and the things you called him it, It's just hard to imagine names like that being spoken by you Why, you have that wonderful, soft, caressing voice Yes Lucille, hey Lucille <laughs> Will you stop tugging at my skirt? I just wanted you to know I'm still here Lewis is the name, Jerry Lewis they call me Don't stop Lucille, tell him off, good all right. <laughs> You're right. Dean Martin, how could you have slugged poor Jerry when you look so, so handsome with those soft eyes and long, long lashes? Yes? Hey, Lucille. Shut up, you little schnook. <laughs> schnook. Me, schnook. The idea of telling those awful fibs about this darling, cute, lammy pie, Dean Martin. I ought to turn you over my knee and spank you. Ding, ding. Yes? <laughs> ding, are you going to stand there and let her talk to me like that? Yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, but really, he isn't bad at all, Lucille. In fact, he's a very nice guy. In fact, he's a wonderful guy. Why, Jerry is the important half of our act. He's the talent. Why, he's the one who gets all the laughs. He's the one the critics rave about. He's the one the people love. Oh, what a ham. <laughs> well, uh, it's sure nice of you to come down tonight and help us get, on our, get, get our first show started, Lucille. I figured we need plenty of advice, advice here in Hollywood. Come on, snap out of it. <laughs> I'm sure you're going to be very successful Well, how about Jerry? Yeah, how about that? <laughs> You'll see, I'm going to be a big star When I make my first picture, I'll be sensational I'll be... Well, you do think I'll be a picture star, don't you, Lucille? Why not? Lassie made it <laughs> If you're going to make fun of me, I'll quit the show I'll give... I'll give... I'll give... Uh... <laughs> I'll give Dean all the money we've saved And I'll go home and lock myself in a closet Kick my heels And hold my breath until I die And if you want to know why I do these things It's because, listen <laughs> Well, don't get too desperate, Jerry Look, I, I have planned a little party for you and Dean after the show uh, Lots of important people will be there Well, that's wonderful, Lucille Well, the only thing, Dean uh, Does Jerry know how to act at a party? Do I know how to act at a party? Why, one time in the back room of a barbershop... Jerry! <laughs> Hold it. You see what I mean? Miss Ball, 
Now, <laughs> Paul, Mr. Martin, I would like to inform you that Gerald Lewis, when attempting a social event, attending a social event. <laughs> Paper, what do you want? <laughs> Miss Ball and Mr. Martin, when I, I'd like to inform you that Gerald Lewis, when attending a social event, always conducts himself with complacent, elegant simplicity, utterly devoid of ostentation. <laughs> Jerry Lewis, where did you get words like that? Don't ask me, I'm just as surprised as you are. <laughs> Gee, I hope there's a girl there for me. Lucille, I like him about my height. Well, let's see now. Betty Grable will be there. And, of course, I like him about my age. Uh-huh. Well, Anne Blythe will be there. And I like him to be of my intelligence. Sorry, Margaret O'Brien can't stay out that late. <laughs> Jerry, I, I hope you understand. I've invited important people. People of refinement, breeding, culture. Don't worry about me. Refinement and breeding and culture pour out of me like sweat off a horse's neck. <laughs> Lucille, don't worry. I'll guarantee Jerry. Well, I don't know. I'm afraid he'll be a little raucous. Raucous? Me? Don't ever worry about Jerry Lewis being raucous. I'll make more noise than anyone there. Uh, now, Lucille... If you'll just tell us the address of the party And, uh, by the way, Lucille, uh, shall we dress? Naturally, we don't want the cops <laughs> Oh, the party sounds like it'll be a lot of fun, Lucille And, uh, I'm sure we'll know exactly what to do Sure, we've been educated You know, I worked my way through Harvard What? Well, he did stumble his way through high school He looks more like he had to shoot his way out of kindergarten <laughs> I'm really looking forward to this, Lucille Well, uh, my house isn't one of those elaborate Hollywood mansions, Dean Oh, there's one thing, Jerry If we decide to go in for a dip Be sure you don't go in the servant's swimming pool <laughs> I'm sorry to butt in, but we go on the air in 30 seconds Okay, fine Are you nervous, Jerry? Me? Nervous? <laughs> 20 seconds I'll be all right I'll kill the people 15 seconds Just let me at them 10 seconds I'll fracture them 5 seconds 4 seconds 3 2 I'll pulverize them The Martin and Lewis show is on the air Go ahead, Jerry Start talking Yes, sir A very funny thing happened to me on the way to the studio Well, come on, Lucille Help me hold Jerry up and we'll do the song Okay, up up he goes. If you got it, you don't need it. If you need it, you don't got it. You don't get it. Shame on you. Funny, funny, funny what money can do. Ask the rich man, he'll confess. Money can't buy. Happiness. Ask a poor man, <laughs> he don't doubt. But he'd rather be miserable with than without. I love life and I want to live. I love life and I say, Jerry, 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 please. 
I know, but you don't have to spoil it for the rest of us. If you spend it, please be wiser. If you save it, you're a miser. If you don't want it, you're cuckoo. Funny, funny, funny what money can do. It's good to be home in bed. And, Dean, I'm sorry I messed up our radio program tonight. Ah, forget it, Jerry. It's past midnight. Better get some sleep. Good night. Good night. Well, who could that be? What do you want? It's me, the maid. (laughs) I'm sorry, but you'll have to get out of those beds. Get out of bed? Why? Well, you see, those beds are six by three beds. And this afternoon, I made a mistake and I put on seven by four sheets. Oh! And if I put the wrong sheets on your beds, the manager will say to me... Look, you miss, ha- if I get up, I'll start walking the floor. And if I start walking the floor, I'll get into a bad humor. And when I go to embassy tomorrow, they'll say, Jerry Lewis, why did you faint on your radio program? And I'll say, who could help but fainting? I was excited. And they'll say, oh, talking back, eh? I guess you don't want to go on the radio very bad. And I'll say, and they'll say, and they'll fire me. It's people like you that cause unemployment. Good night, everybody. Good night, folks. You've just heard the new Martin and Lewis show. If you enjoyed them, tune in again each Sunday night at the same time. And next week, our guest will be Bob Hope. This is NBC, the National Broadcast. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow night, it's yours truly, Johnny Dollar, followed by The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.